Good morning. I'm not used to standing behind such a big lectern <laughs> and sort of being hooked to a mic because I usually pace. So if I, if I get the urge to walk around, I promise I will project, okay? <laughs> and I found the promised water. The Bible tells me so. So many ways in which some people several millennial, millennia ago tried to understand themselves and their God. Some people today, however, think these ancient messages continue to be meaningful and relevant. Some of them do, because there are some things like greed and hypocrisy that are just as prevalent now. But many of them don't because the contexts are so different, and as I'll show, contexts are so important. The Bible has been used, and I would say abused, in the name of God, and while it offers hope for many, it offers horror to others. I usually cringe when I hear people start a sentence with, the Bible says, especially when accompanying by a wagging finger. (laughs) What typically follows is a few verses plucked out of their context and applied to a quite different situation. This we call proof texting, finding something in the Bible that will help one prove one's point. And the person to whom the wagging finger is directed, if in a combative mood, will proof text something else to refute the earlier claim. Most often, neither person convinces the other, and the Bible, it seems to me, is the ultimate loser. Now, before I tell you what the Bible tells me, um, I should follow the advice of most biblical scholars and tell you my social location. In other words, the personal factors that influence how I understand the Bible. I am, obviously, a white woman. And if you agree that age 60 is the new 40, (laughs) middle-aged. Once, after appearing on a local cable talk show, I was dubbed the liberal woman from the North. And yes, I am from the north, if you, although some might consider western Pennsylvania the Midwest. And I got to Shreveport very circuitously via Virginia, Maryland, California, and Colorado. And as most of you know, teaching is actually my second career. Although I was a religion major in college and wanted, even then, to be a college professor, I wasn't able to afford to continue my education. So, instead, I spent nearly 20 years in the computer business where I was on what we called then the fast track. And that track was exhilarating, at least at first. I had a staff of 25 people, was responsible for a million-dollar budget by the time I was 25. However, I became more and more disillusioned and really questioned whether the term business ethics wasn't, wasn't an oxymoron. Because the company for which I worked didn't want to lose me, they offered me some career testing. Now, back in the day when I went to college, there was no such thing. Uh, one's career choice was pretty much trial and error, and I was certainly in the error stage of that first career. But 
they let me test. What kind of job would I be most successful at? Well, anyone want to hazard a guess as to the first top career for me? I'm used to give and take. I'm not used to just giving. Just hazard a guess. No, actually, that would have been a step up. Domestic engineering. (laughs) I thought that's a very, very fancy term for housewife. Second, an actress. And I guess teaching, in a way, can be act and be like an actress. And the third, a race car driver. (laughs) Now, I do have a heavy foot. But I'm not so sure I'm a professional yet. Well, I thought I'd give domestic engineering a try. So I retired. That one didn't work out so well. I eventually failed retirement, experienced what I thought was a call to ministry, went back to school for an MDiv, quickly realized that my call was to a teaching and not to a preaching ministry, six years later finished my Ph.D. in religious and theological studies, with an emphasis in biblical interpretation. How I ended up doing that is a very long story. But as I was finishing my PhD, I was afraid that this education might be nothing more than an expensive midlife crisis or hobby. But much to my surprise, I got an interview for a tenure-track job in Centenary's Religion Department. And to my delight and surprise, I was hired something that allowed me to fulfill my call to teaching. And I remember being absolutely astounded that I was actually being paid to do something I loved, and I still love teaching, despite the challenges that have come with being a liberal woman from the North who was teaching Bible in the buckle of the Bible belt. Okay, just a little anecdote. Buckle of the Bible Belt. When I was actually researching Shreveport to help me decide whether or not to accept an offer if I got one from Centenary, I saw a website declare Shreveport was the buckle of the Bible Belt. Well, being an academic, I tried to find some footnotes to justify that particular claim, found none, figured it was probably just some marketing hype. Come to find out, actually very recently, that that claim might be true. Uh, I'm I'm living in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas now, and the Little Rock paper has a religion spread every Saturday and typically includes a statistic about faith in the United States. Well, one day I saw reference to a survey um, that said that 92% of Little Rock residents self-identified as Christians. Wow. Well, I read further, and I learned that the city with the highest percentage of self-identified Christians, 98%, was Shreveport. So it really might be the buckle of the Bible Belt. Okay, I need to move a little bit over here to do a little dramatic act. Not really. When the uh, famous first-century rabbi, Hillel, um, who actually lived a few years before another famous first-century rabbi that I'll talk about in a minute, when he was asked by a non-Jew 
to explain everything Torah had to say while standing on one foot, he said, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That is the entire teaching of Torah. All the rest is commentary. By the way, that other famous first century rabbi said something very similar a few years later. Now today, if someone were to ask a not-so-famous 21st century rabbi, i.e. teacher, she would probably say, well, stick with the first part, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the whole law. And all the rest is complicated. (laughs) And a lot is more complicated than others. I think it goes without saying that the Bible has been one of the most influential, influential books of all times, both for those who consider all or part of it scripture and for those who don't. The former tend to read it as a way to understand God and God's will, and some of them, unfortunately, use its texts as weapons against others with whom they disagree. The latter frequently read it for insight into the many ways that some people at some time understood their God and that God's will. Now, those of you who have taken any of my classes, either at Centenary or here, know that I prefer the latter perspective. I teach the Bible historically. I try to discern what its texts might have meant to the original writers and the original audiences. And in doing so, I will occasionally stray into the areas of theology, uh, God talk. And it's fair to say that the theological portraits that the Bible paints of God are many and varied. And at at many times, these portraits make God look schizophrenic. God himself would probably agree. Several places God self-identifies. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. These verses highlight several important theological and religious issues. For one, the very idea of a jealous God was an aberration in the ancient world when almost every culture was polytheistic. That is, they acknowledged the existence of and often worshipped many gods, be it a high god, the great gods, the local gods, perhaps household gods, God's representatives on earth, the king, the pharaoh, etc. The more gods they worshipped, the better their chances of pleasing, or at least appeasing some of them. Second, this idea of a jealous god resulted in a theological quandary known as theodicy, God's justice. Or a little bit more easily understood, Eli Wiesel, um, why do bad things happen to good people? Or the biblical Job pondering the opposite, why good things happen to bad people? (laughs) 
uh, the biblical writers had to tell their stories in a way that showed the difficulty of having to attribute everything that happened to Israel's one God. So when bad or inexplicable things happened, they came up with ways to explain them or more often just to explain them away. And as the claim I read earlier indicates, Israel's God was known as a God of love and a God of justice. And in many cases, those are mutually exclusive. Just how and to whom God expresses that love, and probably more significantly, how and to whom that justice is meted out, whether simple punishment or divine retribution, is again what makes the Bible complicated. Throughout the Old Testament, the descendants of Abraham through Sarah, not Hagar, are considered God's chosen people. Now why God chose that particular family out of all the families of the earth isn't made clear until much later. When Moses tells the people, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And it wasn't because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. In fact, you were the fewest. You were the least of all peoples. Now, these and other similar verses show two especially significant characteristics of the biblical God in addition to jealousy. He was known as a God of liberation and a God who sided with what we might say today was the underdog. God in the Old Testament is usually described as the Lord who delivered his people with a mighty hand, redeemed them from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This liberation, i.e. the exodus, is quickly followed by legislation. The Ten Commandments and other guidelines for living in community and for worshiping this one God. Now obeying those guidelines, Torah obedience, is the way that God's people are to thank God for what he has already done, i.e. his acts of love and liberation not to bribe God about what they want him to do in the future. And you excuse me for using the pronoun him, it's just easier. I really do not think God is gendered, but saying he, she, it, um, or whatever gets very complicated, so I am just falling back on him. New Testament writers similarly represented God as one of liberation. The God who raised Jesus from the dead and liberated people from the slavery of sin. So much of what you see in the New Testament is a spiritualized version of what has already happened in the Old Testament. But that the biblical God is one of love, justice, and liberation is just as significant and understandable today. But the fact that God sided with the underdogs is more complicated. In its ancient context, God's chosen people, Israel, were indeed the fewest of all peoples and whose promised land was just a small geographical area whose significance then 
was its location between two major world powers, Mesopotamia to the east, Egypt to the west. And despite the Bible's emphasis on the greatness of Israel, historically it was thought of as just a puny nation with a puny God. Now I have to explain that. Ancient peoples understood heaven and earth to be mirrors of each other. So big, powerful nations, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, had big, powerful gods. And these gods kept vying with each other for dominance. But Israel's puny god, according to the biblical stories, eagerly took on and ended up dominating the bigger, more powerful ones so that his puny nation could similarly kick tush on earth. (laughs) You know what I mean. So, Israel's God flexed his muscles and shellacked, I think that's the new word of choice, right? (laughs) Shellacked the bigger, more powerful gods in order to liberate his underdog people. Consider the plagues in Egypt when Israel's God finally convinced Egypt's God, the Pharaoh, to let his people go. Or when this God led his people into the promised land, which, of course, unfortunately, was already occupied by others. But with God on their side and Joshua, the poster child of trust and obedience, to lead the way, the puny but chosen people defeated the Canaanites, or at least some of them, and put their more powerful gods to shame. Now, in its ancient context, we'd be rooting for this puny God who was fighting for his underdog people by taking on and beating up those who were more numerous and powerful. Today, however, most of us read about the plagues and the conquest and criticize the same God for being bloodthirsty and cruel. Rightly so, I think. This God can no longer be considered a puny God showing his might for an underdog people. Today, this is a God whose worshipers, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, represent the worldwide majority of people. Context matters when dealing with complicated scriptures. Another major theme that dominates both Testaments is a mandate to love God and neighbor. And surprisingly, right after the command to love one's neighbor is one to love the alien in one's midst. And I don't think they were talking about E.T. Leviticus 19, when an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. Why? You were aliens in the land of Egypt, and I loved you. I am the Lord, your God. You know, in fact, that 19th chapter of the book of Leviticus actually includes many ethical obligations in addition to loving neighbor and alien. However, most people just write off the book of Leviticus as just a lot of meaningless rituals and laws, except for two, and only two verses that people use as a weapon against others. One is 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Second, Leviticus 20.13, 
If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, and they shall be put to death. Now, ironically, many who claim um, that this verse condemns homosexuality also claim to read the Bible literally. However, the word homosexuality didn't even appear in print until 1869, 250 years after the King James Bible, God's own Bible, was published. A few years later became a medical term to describe sexual orientation. The word didn't even appear in any Bible until 1957 with the Revised Standard Version. And although I would never claim that the Bible endorses what we call today same-sex relationships, I would argue that homosexuality is a mere blip on the Bible's radar screen. Abominable acts, however, the title given to that, um, gain a lot more biblical attention. Many abominable acts have to do with food, eating the meat of a sacrifice after the second day. We would never do that, I'm sure. That's a joke. Eating eagles, vultures, offspray, or any other unclean animal, including, of course, shellfish. Beware those crawfish boils. The book of Proverbs, interestingly, describes many other acts in the same way as abominations, using false balances, I guess cheating people, having crooked minds, lying lips, evil plans, arrogance, injustice. And the death penalty prescribed for abominable acts is not limited to males who lie with men. It is also deemed appropriate for those who curse their parents. And it's too bad all the children went to happy hour (laughs) because they're probably, perhaps, in trouble. For those who are adulterers and for those who practice fortune-telling, So anytime you read your horoscope in the daily paper, you are committing someone to hell of fire, making them an abomination. You know, it's also important to keep in mind that other purity regulations take a lot more space. Compared to two verses about men lying with men, 47 verses deal with kosher food laws. Eight with purification after childbirth. 33 on bodily discharges. I won't go too much further than that. 20 on other types of sexual prohibitions, and the most, 60 on skin diseases. Now, I'm sure those who focus on those two verses that condemn what they call homosexuality probably wouldn't find it problematic to hang around with people with acne or who eat lobster etouffee or have a baby without going through all the ritual purifications. I could go on, but I think you get the message. Of course, many of these people would scoff at these purity regulations because Jesus nullified them. They don't have to worry about those laws. He emphasized the most significant parts of Torah that his followers were to obey in his Sermon on the Mount. I guess he was too busy focusing on loving one's enemy blessing the meek, the peacemakers, 
just forgot to talk about homosexuality. Some of Jesus' other requirements for being part of the kingdom of God, I'm guessing, are ignored by many of his followers. Give to everyone who begs from you, and don't refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Now, I'm usually not um, criticized for reading the Bible literally, but I actually do. (laughs) I read what it says, and that's something that I'm sure most of us do not obey. So let's take a moment to consider what Jesus did have to say about ethical living on the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is probably his most significant teaching on what was required of people to be part of the kingdom of God and what he didn't. First, he didn't consider Torah obedience a thing of the past. Uh, The responsive reading today uh, in James was something I was going to talk about but had to get cut so that we wouldn't be here until next week. Um, But, yeah, this idea of faith versus works. Well, you know, he said he did not come to abolish the law, as some of his opponents claimed, but to actually bring it to full measure, to fulfill it. And, in so doing, he actually made it more difficult. In addition, for example, to not murdering, his followers were not to be angry at each other or to insult each other, or to call anyone a fool. I think many of us would be condemned to the hell of fire for that. And in addition to not committing adultery, his followers were not to look at a woman, or presumably a man, with lust. The famous Jimmy Carter confession. I'm sure some of you may know about that. Others of you don't. I have to continually explain it in classes, not only who who Jimmy Carter was, but the significance of just thinking about someone with lust for a president. Anyway, um, in that same sermon, Jesus tells his followers not to resist evildoers, to love their enemies and those who persecute them, and to turn the other cheek. You know, bumper sticker theology is always a little dicey. Um, But one of my favorites, um, although it's hard to know exactly what Jesus meant when he said to love one's enemies, he probably didn't mean to bomb them. Interwoven through Jesus' proclamation of the newer Torah, he makes continual references to hypocrisy and false piety, the attributes of religious life that he condemned. Beware, he said, of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. You'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Other places, when you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you. I mean, I can just see. (laughs) Well, I mean, you you can imagine. I mean, here is my gift for the altar today. Okay? And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. In other words, Jesus and the Old Testament prophets before him denounced religious grandstanding, doing righteous or ritual acts to show off one's wealth or piety. Amos, speaking for God several centuries earlier, I hate, I despise your festivals. 
Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, I will not accept them. The offering of well-being of fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the medley of your hearts. Harps, excuse me. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Micah, a few centuries later, um, said very similar words uh, that Susan read earlier. What does God want of you, O mortal, but what is good? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus, or perhaps more accurately, those writers who put their words in Jesus' mouth, uh, specifically castigate the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Their righteousness is more for show than for substance. One of many verses where Jesus um, criticizes the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice, mercy, and love of God. It is those you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. So Torah obedience isn't a matter of picking and choosing. You don't get to select what part you want to obey. He calls Pharisees names, hypocrites, snakes, false guides, And as a result, many Christians today consider Pharisees just worthy of contempt and, of course, often extend that contempt for those who have descended from the Pharisees. But again, it's much more complicated. When Jesus was vilifying the Pharisees, he was vilifying his own religion's leadership. Jesus was a Jew, and the Gospel of Matthew emphasizes this Jewishness. Matthew's community, that is, the people for whom Matthew wrote his gospel, uh, sorry, it really wasn't us, were Jewish Christians, Jews who believed, contrary to the majority, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But perhaps an even more important matter, sorry, of religious and historical context, the vilifying words that Matthew and other gospel writers put in Jesus' mouth reflect what I call the divorce the split that occurred around 90 CE AD between the two branches of Judaism, Pharisaic Judaism and Christian Judaism. When the former group of Jews, the Pharisaic Jews, expelled the latter group, the Christian Jews, from the synagogue. How rude. Why would they do that? Well, probably the oldest reason in history. They disagreed on how scriptures should be interpreted. Pharisaic Jews still held the purity regulations in high regard. Christian Jews didn't. Probably more significantly, Pharisaic Jews were still waiting for the Messiah to come. Christian Jews thought he had already come and thought he was going to come again anytime soon. So the Pharisaic Jews divorced the Christian Jews, and they kept the house, i.e. the synagogue. The kids, however were able to make their decisions about what parents they wanted to stay with. All this to say, the time leading to and directly after a divorce or any other significant uh, break in a relationship is usually the most bitter and hostile. 
Someone you once loved, you now hate, and you call names. Unfortunately, the New Testament scriptures were written at that crucial and hateful time in the relationship between these two types of Jews. For many Jews and Christians today, the wounds are healed. The parties have gone their separate ways. However, the name-calling associated with this time of bitterness and hostility remains and is now considered the word of God. And unfortunately, these words have legitimated hatred and atrocities like the Holocaust and many others. Well, my time here is coming to an end, I think just existentially, not physically, or maybe physically, I don't know, I don't know. I teach a course on end time, so it's really hard to say, you know. So I'd like to venture a few words about another tacky subject, religion and politics. You know, you're never supposed to talk about religion and politics. I guess I'll just put off sex for a long time later. But even though, you know, we claim they are to be kept separate, we don't really know what being separate means. The two certainly weren't separate when the biblical texts were written. And I think it's fair to say that Jesus often uses political language many times refers to the good news of the kingdom of God or the reign of God and describes it in ways that contrast explicitly with the kingdom that was on earth in his day, the Roman Empire, whose motto was Pax Romana, which means what? Roman peace. Of course, the Roman way of maintaining peace was by war, use of military force, Its leadership was based upon money and power. The kingdom that Jesus was announcing and in some ways beginning to implement was one characterized, as I said, by loving one's enemies, giving to all who beg for you, from you, turning the other cheek, and focusing on the weightier matters of justice, love, and mercy. Now, in the days following the 2004 presidential election, a revised map of the United States and Canada appeared on the Internet. The so-called red states were referred to as Jesus land, with the blue states in Canada were called in some the United States of Canada or in others the United States of Liberty and Education. Well, this map thus implied that the red states stood for Christian values and were indebted to Jesus. Personally, I doubt that Jesus would have approved that message. Nowhere in the Gospels does he mention issues such as homosexuality, abortion, stem cell research, gun rights. And although we certainly don't have time to debate what it means that the U.S. is often called a Christian nation, we might be able to agree that our policies seem more in line with those of the Roman Empire and less to those that Jesus said characterize the kingdom of God. And my fervent wish is that we will eventually experience the true kingdom that Jesus announced, wherever, whenever, and however it will come, because the Bible tells me so.